sort of a, as a precursor to uh, our Sunday beginning of Advent. Uh, by the way, in your newsletter, we scheduled a baptism uh, for Sunday, but that wouldn't uh, scheduling conflict for some of the families. So he asked if we could move that forward a week. So we will not uh, be baptizing Noah Williams Sunday morning, but we will uh, as quickly as they can uh, get that in line. But otherwise, we'll be uh, beginning our Advent theme on Sunday morning. So this is maybe a little bit of an introduction to that. And it also ties in uh, with what I've been sharing uh, from the minor prophets. Uh, I want to try to get back to that probably by the beginning of the year. I think the Christmas season will be uh, filled with uh, Christmas messages, and we'll conclude that uh, on our Christmas Eve uh, Lord's Supper observant. But we're looking in Malachi, uh, written about 433 B.C. Uh, one, one author I was reading indicated that they had probably been back from the Babylonian captivity at this point about 100 years. Uh, but it's often called uh, the, the, the period between the Old Testament or the closing of the Old Testament and the New, the intertestamental period, uh, believed to be around 400 years, uh, where there wasn't uh, what didn't mean that God, God was inactive, uh, but it meant that there was no new word from God. There was no new prophet uh, who came on the scene or a prophet who spoke for the word of God in that period of time and really leading up uh, to the birth of Christ. So that's just what I wanted to share. I was interested in reading Malachi uh, because I was wanting to think about the circumstances uh, that were present uh, at, the, at the coming of Christ or the, or the announcement of the birth of Christ and really the last word to the people, and that was all they had uh, for this 400 years. And so I just want to look at the book of Malachi tonight. Uh, we'll just read a, read a few, at least chapter 1, and then I'll pick up in the other chapters. It's kind of an uh, overhead survey, if you will, of the book of Malachi. But he begins here, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. But I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains a desolation, and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. And though Edom says we have been broken down, but we will return and build up the ruins, thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down, and men will call them the wicked territory, and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? And that, in that you say the table of the Lord is despised. That's how you, they were defiling him. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you present the lame and sick, is it not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you or would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us? With such offering on your part, we, will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were among you those among you who would shut the gates, that you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense is going to be offered to my name and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you are profaning it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled. And as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is. And you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick. So you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. And now this commandment is for you, O priest. If you do not listen and if you do not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. And indeed, I have cursed them already because you are not taking it to heart. Behold, I am going to rebuke your offspring, and I will spread refuse on your faces, the refuse of your feast, and you will be taken away with it. 
then you will know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant may continue with Levi, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace. I gave them to him as an object of reverence, so, so he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and unrighteousness was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many back from iniquity. For the lips of the priest should preserve knowledge, and men should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But as for you, you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by the instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways, but are showing partiality in the instruction. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously against each brother as to, as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakens and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is, our, is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant, of, a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth, for I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or where is the God of justice? Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of the silver, silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness." Then the offspring of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien <clears throat> and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? <clears throat> will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for your sake so that he will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grape, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed for you shall be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been arrogant against me says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his charge and that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they also test God and escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him, so you will again distinguish between righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. 
For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinance which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So very short prophecy, so I decided to read it all there. I, I just want to look tonight at just, the, just really the indictments uh, in regards to the people here. It's striking to me, uh, but this is a pretty severe indictment, and then we go silent. 400 years now are going to unfold, and we have not another word from the Lord. So it begs the question, did it improve? Did things get better? Did they hear this rebuke? Uh, well, we'll find out that they didn't. We'll look at that in a couple of moments. But I just wanted to look at the, at the, at the indictments he makes against his people throughout this book. In chapter 1, verse 2, and then also really verses 1 and 5, <coughs> his indictment here is that they had forgotten God's love for them. More specifically, I thought was interesting, uh, they asked the question, how? How have you loved us? It's not as though they're saying, you didn't love us. They're saying, how? They've forgotten how God had loved them. I see at least two things, three things in his explanation here. Uh, in verse 2, I see he reiterates here the sovereignty, this electing love. He says there, have you, how have you loved us? And he says to them, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yes, he was. And he says, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. And so there is a sovereign election of Jacob over Esau in that case. So, so you have forgotten how I loved you by my sovereign act of election of your people. You're no better than, Jake, you're no better than Esau in an inherently in yourselves. I elected you by my sovereign grace. You've forgotten that. You've forgotten that. I think the second one here uh, you see as well in verse 4 is that it was to be also how he had loved them. It was a distinguishing love. I think that's what he means when he goes on in chapter 3 and then also verse 4 as well to regard uh, the way he distinguished between Esau and Jacob. Jacob he had spared and been merciful to, but he had judged, as it were, Esau. He made a desolation of his territory. So, so it's a distinguishing love. I have loved you distinctly. I have chosen you sovereignly by my election, not by any quality of your own. And I've distinguished between my dealings with you and my dealings with Esau. So this is how he loved them. This is a description of the love of God for his people. And they had forgotten this. And the last one I think you see generally in that, even in verse 5 there, when he says, your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. And I, I view that then as a sort of a delivering love, a victorious love. You will see the devastation of Edom and you will, you will rejoice in some sense there because they would become your enemies. And then you will, you will say, may the Lord be magnified. So, so it's a delivering love as well. They had forgotten that. Uh, I'll, I'll get to this later, but as things unfolded, by the, time, by the time of the writing of this, they had been back, like I said, some, maybe some estimates are 100 years from the Babylonian captivity. And they were still, even at this time, I think under... Uh, under, under that Medo-Persian, as it were, uh, rule there. In other words, they were allowed to go back, but they were not independent of, of the Medo-Persian rules. You remember Cyrus allowed them to go back. They'd rebuilt the temple. So they're still under, under the hand of a, of a foreign king, as it were. But things had deteriorated greatly at this point. By this time, uh, this, they had already forgotten God's love for them. That's, that's really quite incredible But if you think of the entire history of Israel. I mean, God had delivered them, spared them. Yes, he had judged them. Yes, he had brought discipline upon them. But he disciplines those whom he loves. I mean, they had they, their whole life, the wilderness wanderings, their whole life 
was, was a testimony of God's gracious love and gracious mercy towards them. And apparently at this point, his indictment is, you've forgotten my love for you. You've forgotten that. And not more, more than that, you've forgotten how I have loved you. So he rebukes them for that. In verses 6 through 14 and then chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, they had really, this is my words, they had ceased to respect God and his ordained form of worship. You see that in verse uh, 6. It says there, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? Uh, I, you, have dis, you have disrespected me, he goes on to say. If the Lord, says the Lord of hosts, O priest who despised my name. But you say, how have we, de, how have we despised that? And so they, what they were doing, they were presenting defiled food upon the altar. But you say, how have we defiled you? And that you say that, and, and that defilement was in that they say the table of the Lord is to be despised. They were, I don't know that they were literally saying that, but the way they were handling it, was, was uh, defiling it, and by the doing of that, they were despising the Lord himself in the table of the Lord. They were making light, devaluing the table, devaluing the form of worship that God had ordained for them, and they cheapened the whole thing, and by doing so, they were dishonoring God. I couldn't think of a better description of, of nominalism or nominal worship or rote worship without any heart involved at all. They were going through the motions and eventually that would deteriorate into, into offering the, the lesser quality animals of the flock. And he goes on to rebuke them for that. So they dishonored him, disrespected by, I think by, the, by disrespecting his ordained means of worship, they were dis disrespecting God himself defiling the altar with, he goes on to say in verses six through seven, but with the blind and the lame and the sick. In fact, the, their, the weariness of it all, they were begrudging and it was like a bitter service to God. It was just like lip service to God. Let's go through the motions, no use in sacrificing the qualities of our flocks. Let's throw the things that we don't like anyway, the ones that we don't reproducing, the blind and the lame and the and the, the diseased among the flock, let's give them to God. After all, he's God. He doesn't need anything to eat. And by that cheapened, that cheapened worship, they were really dishonoring or devaluing God himself. That's quite an indictment for these people at this time. In chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, another indictment here is that they had abandoned their covenant relationship uh, for the worship, as it were, uh, the, or maybe even the commingling of the worship of the nations. In fact, some people uh, speak as though they were influenced so greatly by the culture uh, of the Medo-Persians that they had commingled and began to worship in odd ways or incorporate things involved in that. But they had abandoned that covenant. In chapter 2, beginning of verse 10, He says, do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? He goes on to talk about, uh, I think he means here intermarrying, but it seems to me there's a spiritual application here as well. They, they literally were abandoning the wife of their youth, which was the covenant God had with them, and they were embracing an, adultery, an adulterous affair with the nations around them. So maybe they were accommodating cultural influence at the time or the Medo-Persian influences. So, so even though they were allowed to go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, reestablish the temple worship, they were commingling that in some ways and they were devaluing that altogether. So they were literally forsaking the covenant of their youth. And certainly, they were certainly taking wives of the, of the pagans as well and, and commingling and intermingling in relationships with those who were not believers. So they were rebuked. And that was part of the indictment as well. In fact, by the time of Christ coming uh, through, through history, they became really Hellenistic. And, and I think that contributed in some way to the very same thing here. It, it watered down uh, their theology and their faith in God. In verses 13 through 16, the indictment here was that they cry upon the altars for God's favor, Yet they hardened themselves so as to be blind to the cause of its, his withdrawal, which was really their unfaithfulness. That was really striking because they act this way. 
God does not receive the offering. I, I think that would be mean that they, he was not reciprocating with the, with the expected blessings for the offering up of those things. And they were, they were distressed, and rightly so. But what did they do? They covered the altar of the Lord with their tears and with their weeping and with their groaning because he no longer regards the offering or acceptance with favor from their hand. And yet you say, for what reason? And that's when he says, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is a compassion, a companion of your wife by covenant. And so they, not only did they harden their hearts and commit this adultery, whether literally by taking, uh, leaving their wives and taking other wives, or whether he's speaking spiritually, they had abandoned their covenant relationship with God and embraced a, a new relationship with the pagan gods. Whatever the case is here, he's saying, because I withdrew my favor on that basis, you come to the altar and you weep and you groan and you, and you moan and you can't figure out why God's withdrawn his favor and you're pleading with God. God, God, where is your favor? And you've hardened your heart to the, to the adulterous nature of your relationship with these pagan gods. So they've hardened themselves. And now they don't even understand that the reason for God's withdrawal of his favor was their unfaithfulness. In chapter 2, verse 17, another indictment here is they call into question, and these are my words as well, they call into question the righteousness of God. I'm getting that from verse 17. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? Uh, I thought about that in the context of the weeping on the altar. I would think the Lord would write that. That's, that's demonstrative of humility here and, and of, and of uh, mourning and grieving. The problem was you don't, you're not repenting. You're not recognizing why his favor's withdrawn. You just know that you're not getting the blessing you used to. And like a baby who doesn't get his milk, you're crying. And down in verse 17, he says, you've wearied me with your words. And they say, how have we wearied him? What did we say? And he says, you weary me in that you say everyone who does evil is in good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? Uh, that second phrase makes me think that the first one, it's not, it's not two extremes. It's the same thing. It's as if they're saying, where's the God of justice? If there's oppression, if God removes his favor and they're suffering in any way, they, they are saying things like, well, apparently the Lord, the Lord delights in them. Uh, everyone who does evil is good in his sight because they're the ones prospering and getting the favor. He says, you say things like that. And then you say things like the last one here. Where's the God of justice here? So I think they're calling into question the righteousness of God because he had withdrawn his favor from them and they resented that. And they saw the, those that were used as instruments to rebuke them. They saw them being blessed in their wickedness and they were concluding, well, well he must think they're good. And you're calling into question the righteousness of God himself because the wicked were prospering. That's quite an indictment. I mean, you're questioning the character of God while your character is rotten. <laughs> you're calling into question the righteousness of God and you forsaking him every step of the way and abandon the covenant with the wife of your youth. And you're going to call into question the righteousness of God. You weary me with those words God says to his people. And must, how must it have wearied God? I mean, you talk about a slap in the face. I mean, every mercy you endure comes from a righteous God. And you forsake that very mercy and go after foreign gods and then wonder why I've removed my favor from you and even accuse me of unrighteousness in doing so. Incredible. In chapter 3, verse 7, the indictment here is that they had not departed from the pattern of turning away from God's law. You see that in chapter 7, verse 3, chapter 7 there at the conclusion of those verses just before. He says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statues and have not kept them. Return to me and I will turn to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we, how shall we return? So the indictment here is that it's not just this generation 
You are repeating the pattern of history for which your fathers have endured the severe hand of God Almighty. You haven't been long from captivity in Babylon, which was a disciplinary action against your people from God. And yet here you are only a hundred years out from your captivity and you are turning aside once again from the word, the law of God and from listening and relating to God as you should. And amazingly, they say, how, how, do we, how do we turn aside? It's almost like they're oblivious to this reality and they're experiencing all the, all the mercies of God, as it were, in rebuking them. And yet they are completely blind to those mercies. They had not departed from the pattern of turning away from God's law. I, I thought about that. You would think generationally, and it says something. I think I told Steve Johnson we were talking last Sunday night and we and just about government and things, and, you know, he's in politics, but uh, I made the statement. I said, there's one, there's main, one main reason I think that our form of government is the best on the planet, and that is that it takes into account the fallen nature of man. And it says this, one generation sees the error of the generation prior, and, and they repeat the same errors. And so generation after generation winds up suffering and one generation says, well, we don't want to do that again. And in 50 years, they do it again, maybe in a different form, but they keep falling for the same error. So it was with his people. And that's the indictment. After all this time, after the captivity of the northern kingdom and after the southern kingdom endured captivity because you had gone away from God, here you are again, 100 years out of Babylonian captivity, and you're turning aside again. It's as if he's saying, you never learn. You never learn. And that's a serious indictment as well. In chapter 8, 3, verses 8 and 12 8 through 12, they were defrauding God. Uh, that's, that's the literal translation relation there, robbing. They were defrauding God by withholding tithes and offerings. I think generally there, it should be that there is a disregard in doing that. There is a disregard of God as the provider. In fact, part of, part of returning the tithe under that, under that relationship with God was indicative of a recognition of God as the provider. Yes, we know God doesn't eat grain, but, but he also provided that that grain and those offerings would supply those who are serving him in the temple area. And they were depriving or withholding that. Maybe things were difficult. Maybe they couldn't afford it. Maybe they, maybe they felt as though they couldn't make ends meet in their own home or perhaps their children would go hungry. So they defrauded God and said, yes, we acknowledge that you are the provider, but, but we have higher priorities here. So we're going to retain this to ourselves, meet our needs and after all, you're God and you really don't have any needs. I don't know how they justified it, but the bottom line is that God, they were under the command at that point. I don't think this is a New Testament command, but they were under the command at that point that they should give of the tithe and they were withholding the tithes and the offerings. And that was God's indictment. Why? Because you're defrauding me. You're, you're, you're benefiting from my provision yet not acknowledging that very provision. You're dishonoring and devaluing me, the source of your, of your being sustained by the fruit of the ground, the rain and the, and the soil and all the things necessary to produce that crop come by my sovereign hand. And by withholding the tithe, you are disregarding me. He goes later on to talk about his holy name. His name will not be defamed. It will be magnified in the nations. And so it should be with his own people. But they had not done that. As I said, uh, often we hear this in our day. And I, I think a lot of Christians say the word tithe and they simply mean offering. But be careful that you don't take this passage in Malachi as, as transferring to the New Testament as a command that we should tithe. In fact, the New Testament sets the standard uh, really even higher because all that we have belongs to God. So, so be careful about that. I understand some people use that word tithe and they don't really mean a legal mandate to tithe in the New Testament. That's just the Bible word they use for giving and they set for themselves a standard of 10% and that's fine. That's fine. 
as long as people don't call that a tithe, but they were under this command. It wasn't New Testament error here. They are under command that they were to tithe. That was the supporting of the temple complex there and all those who served within the temple. And they were withholding that from God. It says secondarily to me there that they were devaluing what was happening in the temple. If I'm not willing to support it, it must not be that much of a priority to me. And after all, it clearly wasn't a priority because whenever they took their offerings there, they took the, the weakest of their flocks and offered them up and the priests received those and they offered those up. So they corrupted the whole thing. So it may be that they were withholding the tithe because it's just demonstrative that they're devaluing of the whole process altogether. In either way, it was defrauding God. In chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, <coughs> Excuse me, he speaks here of their arrogance. It's a really striking verse when you think about it. Your words, he says, have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? What have we said that you were are saying is arrogant? That's their challenge to God. And he says, you say it's vain to serve God. It's an act of futility to serve God. It is an emptiness to serve God and what profit is there if we have kept his charge? And that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts. The bottom line here is they cease to see any gain whatsoever in serving God. I mean, I, I don't know how you get farther away from God than that. And obviously it was manifesting itself in all these other indictments because all those things are the fruit of their having concluded in their own hearts. It is no longer advantageous for us to serve God. In fact, it might become burdensome for us. This is all the more stunning when you realize that this is a generation, some may have still been alive, who were in Babylon in captivity. And, and you're going to say now in this, in this relative umbrella of mercy in which you've been allowed to go back to Jerusalem and back to the temple worship, you're going to say at that moment then, it's of no profit to serve God anymore. I mean, I would have been tempted to say, would you like to go back to Babylon? Was it nicer there? I mean, the Jews were the same way when they went into the wilderness. As soon as it got difficult, they said it would have been better off. We had cucumbers. I like cucumber, but I don't like them good enough to go back into bondage for them. But they were willing to do that. Let's go back to Egypt. We, we were safer there. And here they are in that again. In whatever the circumstances, they had concluded that it was vain to serve God. Empty. And there's no real profit in it. That's another serious indictment. In fact, it goes farther in verse 15. But their arrogance was not only that they concluded this, but that they actually promoted or encouraged wickedness. He says, so now we call the arrogant blessed. And only, the, and, and only are the doers, not only are the doers of the wickedness built up and encouraged in that, but they put God to the test and we tolerate it, I think is what he means. You tolerate that and they escape. There's no accountability. They bring these sacrifices and, and they bring them and the priest looks at that and the priest say, doesn't rebuke them and say, how dare you bring a lame lamb to this altar? Are you not fearing God? That's what they were supposed to do. In fact, he says that back in chapter 2 in regards to the priest. He was to have a, a mission of life here and to instruct rightly the people and honor God. He had a, a, a treasured position there. But now the priests are receiving these offerings without rebuke. So not only are you endorsing the arrogant and the doers of wickedness, but you're actually building them up because you're giving them the mental justification as having, uh, having accomplished their dutiful offerings to God. And they brought the, the worst of their flocks and the priest who ought to have rejected that outright received it. Received it. So not only are you building them up, but in, in letting them go away like that, you let them test God, as it were, and escape. You don't call them out. I mean, these are serious indictments. And this is what's stunning to me. All of a sudden now, after this letter, the prophets go quiet. This is the last word to his people for the next 400, 
430-some years, 400 years now, there's not going to be another word from God. This is what they were left with. And it begs the question, did they hear it? Did they hear it? Well, it seems to me as you see history unfolding that, that they began to suffer more and more and even grow more and more corrupt. The conditions here, I just looked these up, but in 433 B.C., as I already mentioned, the Jews had returned from Babylon captivity. Mostly, it says, it was interesting, I was doing some research, but mostly they returned as merchants. They were no longer shepherds, very many. So, so they were transferred, transitioned in, in Babylon uh, from shepherding or an agrarian sort of people. And then when they sent them back to Jerusalem all those years later, they were businessmen. Merchants, sellers of things, men who had a, a, a financial interest in the, in the political spectrum and in the business world and had to manipulate and get the price up and sell over here and make money, profits. They changed. The captivity changed the people. So they were primarily merchants now and no longer shepherds. Interestingly enough, uh, as I mentioned, the Medo-Persians were still ruling there. Uh, they did have the temple rebuilt. Uh, the, the law and the Arianic priesthood was actually restored there. And pretty much idol worship ended at that point. They didn't fall so much again to Molech and some of the Ashtoreths and some of the false gods. So it, they kind of learned their lesson in regards to that. That's not good. Uh, the people themselves, the indictments here, just a summary they were mistreating their wives, obviously. They were intermarrying with pagans. They were not tithing. They were neglecting the temple. And, uh, not, and the priests were neglecting the temple and not teaching the people. In general, there was no honoring of God remaining now in Jacob or in Israel. So in 333 B.C., Israel then fell to the Greeks, Alexander uh, there they adopted the Greek language, many of the customs and manners of the Greek people. Uh, ultimately, uh, you remember Alexandria uh, was where they translated the New Old Testament into Greek, which they gave us the Septuagint, which is actually quoted in the New Testament. So that's where the language, that was 333 B.C. Uh, they were allowed to kind of go along as in pretty much freedom there. 323, uh, it, it actually fell to the Egyptians as well, Israel did. And then 204 B.C., Antiochus of Syria uh, captured Israel. He and his successor, Antiochus Epiphanes, persecuted the Jews and sold the priesthood. 171 B.C., Epiphanes desecrates the Holy of Holies and sparks the Maccabean Revolt. Many of you have read Judas Maccabeus and the revolt happened there. And by 165 B.C., the Jews recaptured Jerusalem, cleansed the temple, and there's still ongoing fighting with the Syrians. Uh, that continues all the way to 63 B.C. Until finally in 63 B.C., Rome uh, gains control of Israel. And Pompey once again defies the Holy of Holies. 47 B.C., Caesar installs Antipater, the descendant of Esau, and Antipater appoints his two sons as kings over Galilee and Judea. And by the time the New Testament opens, Antipater's son Herod the Great is king. The priesthood is no longer Aaronic, but more political. In fact, it develops into two political factions, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And of course, the Sanhedrin uh, was 70 of those, the chief priest and the 70, and they had the real authority. They were like the Supreme Court a political wing. They were the more liberal of the wing, but in the more uh, conservative wing, they began to be so guarding of the law that they began to implement all these traditions to keep you from breaking the law, and that rose to the level of the law uh, of the law itself in their minds. In fact, they made the law almost meaningless and impossible to live up to by the people by that. So there was an overreaction to conservatism, perhaps against the liberalism of the, San, of the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees. That's the scene uh, the New Testament opens in. And see, to me, that, that suggests something to me. It suggests to me that they didn't hear Malachi's prophecy. Things kept deteriorating. 
They kept coming under occupation from other nations. They, they kept enduring this difficulty and all the way by the time of Christ, the Arianic priesthood has been squeezed out and it is a political realm and, that's the, and that resulted in the oppression of the people. And we wonder what were, why were expectations of a Messiah so high at the time of Christ? This is why. It had deteriorated to the point to where the people were being oppressed. The common people were being oppressed under these political systems of religion, under the corruption, all those things under, under foreign dominating kings, under persecution. And I think they had come to the conclusion that there's only one deliverance from this. And this is that our promised Messiah must come. And so, yes, expectations were high. And Malachi indicates that as well. Let me review those in chapter 1, verse 10 through 11, and then 13 through 14. God's appeals to those people. He's rebuked them, but his appeals here in regards to his name. There he says his name shall, is great and shall be honored. That's, that's what they ought to have been doing. But he's saying to them, it will be. And you will, you will one day honor it, even if it's under the mighty hand of the judgment of God Almighty. It will be honored. In chapter 2, verses 1 and 4, he rebukes uh, his rebuke of the priesthood. In fact, chapter 5, two, verse 5 through 7, he talks about what sort of blessing they ought to have been, but yet they were not, and nor were they at the time of Christ. At the time of his incarnation, certainly, but even in the time of his ministry, they ought to have been a blessing, but they were not. They became oppressive to the people. You remember Jesus rebukes them. You load them down with heavy burdens, but you yourself are not willing to carry one ounce of that burden. They were what had been planned to be a blessing to the people became a burden to the people. In chapter 3, Verse 1 and 7, we get the first inkling of the messenger who is coming before the Lord. Behold, I am going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, they could have read that and rejoiced. Yes, yes. Those in Christ's time or Christ just before his birth reading the prophecy of Malachi. Oh, yes, let him come. There's never been a greater time and a greater need for him to come. Oh, let him come. But then he says to them, but who can endure the day of his coming? Boy, that's sobering. Who can endure this? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. To me, that was a, an inkling that he may, he may have a different effect when he comes than I'm anticipating. Unless I'm categorizing everybody else as the ones who's going to get refined. Because he's, he's at clearly saying, oh yes, when I say this, you're anticipating me. But when he comes, who can stand then? And that's exactly the effect I think Christ had upon this world, particularly when he came to adulthood and began to enter into his ministry. He was a refiner soap. He was that, he was that who can bear that? And they couldn't bear it so much so that they put him to death because they were not willing to bear it. And this Messiah who was to come before the Lord, or this messenger coming before the Lord, and he encourages them or exhorts them in chapter 3, verse 7, to return to me, and I will turn to you. In chapter 3, verse 10 and 12, they would restore the tithe there, he tells them as well. Their hope, chapter 3, verses 16 through 18, in regards to this book of remembrance, what an encouragement here. Malachi says, then those who... After these indictments, he says, Then those who feared the Lord or reverenced the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention, and he heard that. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. And he says of these people, They will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So again, when he comes... And those who are recorded in this book, so you will again distinguish those who belong to him between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. Uh, that, I think that's a, a summary of the indictment of Malachi. 
you couldn't distinguish. You couldn't distinguish them between those who were wicked and those who were righteous. There was no distinction. They were, they were all flattened out into this one kind of people, and there was no one who was honoring God. Apparently, they were yet a remnant of those who feared the Lord, and they had the promise that they would be secure. He mentions the future that's coming. I think this is the ultimate future as well. Perhaps they applied it to the immediate, uh, the first coming of Christ in chapter 4, verse 1, 3, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer would be chaffed. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But in the midst of that, for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in his wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall and you will tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing says the Lord of hosts he ends with them with this exhortation verse 4 remember he says the law of Moses my servant even the statutes and ordinance which I commanded him in Horeb of all Israel and then this promise behold I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord you'll recall that Jesus, they cite this to Jesus, and Jesus said to him, I say to you, Elijah has already come, if you can hear it. And I think he's referring to this passage. I'm sending you, Elijah, before that great and terrible day of the Lord, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. In verse 6, then, he says, this Elijah will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. You could preach a message there. But he says so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Uh, to me, that period of darkness, that 400 years of silence, that last indictment, and the, and the inklings of the promise to come, and the conditions as they deteriorated, provoked, as it were, in the people a longing and a yearning for that Messiah to come. Yes, I preach from Isaiah 53. I don't think they anticipated that he would achieve victory for them in the way that he did, but he's coming. And to me, that darkness that was getting worse and worse up until the time of Christ, the incarnation, the coming of Jesus Christ, the, the pregnancy of Zechariah or Elizabeth and Zechariah, the birth of John the Baptist as the Elijah, as it were, and pre precursor to the coming of Jesus Christ, that moment, that light come into the world and pierced the darkness as it had become. And then he would grow. And that's what we're about to get into and as we think through Advent and work our way through the Christmas season, remembering the coming of Christ. Uh, those indictments are not, uh, I thought about this in application, uh, we're, we're anticipating a second coming. And it's as if God might take this prophecy and bring it to apply to us today, to we who call ourselves religious, and he might make the very same indictments of us. And there may be some darkness if there's no change and we, and we don't hear and return to him. There may be some darkness and the times may be getting tough and we'll be all the way out at the end of there somewhere. and We'll be like them. We'll be crying out, oh, there, where is the Messiah? There is, there is no recovering for this. Oh, Christ Jesus, come. And he'll come. And this same prophecy will be fulfilled. Because that, at that point, Jesus is returning. So maybe we ought to hear the rebuke of Malachi and make sure that we are among the remnant who fear the Lord as we see things deteriorate and get darker in this world. And I'm convinced that that's what we ought to be because one day he's coming back. He's coming back. I heard, a, I heard a secular commentator the other day uh, that said on the radio, he said he used to hear uh, religious people uh, say things like Jesus coming back and he said he kind of dismissed that sort of lightly but he said here lately as a, as a person who's not overtly religious here lately when people say that he's thinking to himself uh, I think he gave the example he says you ever notice when you want to buy a car in, in his case it was a white car for the two weeks before I bought that car every car I saw was white every car I saw was white and he said, that's the way it is now. When I hear people say Jesus is coming back, there's something in me that says, that may be true. Now. It's not something to dismiss and may be way out there. That may come to pass very quickly. And so I believe Jesus is coming back, maybe in our lifetimes. 
Almost certainly, it seems, in our children's lifetimes. I don't know, but he's coming back, and it's getting closer every single day. And as we see this world getting darkened, we need to be careful that we don't fall into the trap of the people that God's rebuking in Malachi's time, but that we're that remnant whose names are written in a book who will be preserved through that. That's the exhortation, I think, for our generation. So stand with me tonight. Thank you for being here. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have clear evidence of prophecy from the very beginning, from the very garden of the Christ who would come and crush the serpent's head. And then we have the evidence of his having arrived through the scriptures, through history itself, through our own personal experience. Jesus did come. Those prophecies were fulfilled. But Father, we find ourselves in the last days awaiting a return that is just as clearly prophesied. Lord, just as surely as Jesus came into this world, he will be coming back into this world. And Father, I rejoice that it will not be, it will not be as a, in the quiet of a Bethlehem town in a, in a manger, but it will be with glory and great power. And there will be none who do not recognize that it is the Lord of glory. Philippians tells us that there will be a day that comes that every knee will bow and things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, God the Father. Lord, as Christians, we anticipate that day with joy, but Father, help us to hear Malachi's warning as well. Yes, we want him to come, but we need to be reminded that he will be a refining fire. He will be that fuller soap. And Father, I pray that we would, by your grace and by your spirit, yield our lives up to you now to walk in obedience, to, to be those who fear and reverence the Lord with all of our hearts. Lord, that we might not be caught up in the, in the trends and the, and, the, and, the, and the passions of these last days and inordinate affections, but that we might be found faithful in that day. Bless those who've come tonight, Father. I lift each of these who are here tonight up to you in prayer. You have your own specific work in the heart of each of us. And Lord, I just pray that you'll be gracious to continue that work to transform us to the image of Christ. We ask in his name for his sake. Amen.